I wanted to talk tonight about the Brahma Viharas. It's a funny thing in a metta retreat, you know, in a Vipassana retreat we talk about all these different topics. Somebody from the outside comes in and says, what are you talking about tonight? Say metta. And they'll ask, what are you talking about the next night? Metta. And it doesn't vary very much on these retreats. So tonight I'll talk about the Brahma Viharas. The person I was starting to think about as I was getting ready for this talk tonight uh, is an Indian woman, an Eastern Indian woman from Bengal named Deepama. And I know a number of you have heard of her. And it's really interesting. Sometimes people just hear her name and have a very strong connection with her. And especially for women, she's a really inspiring figure because she's one of the strongest women teachers to come out of Asia in, in our lifetimes. And I particularly want to recommend, if you're interested, a book on her life and her teachings called Knee Deep in Grace. It's a beautiful book with accounts of her uh, biography, the teaching stories from her, and some great photos of her. A lot of people use it as a devotional piece on their altar. I recommend that to you. She was one of the most um, amazing yogis and individuals that I've had the chance to spend time with. On her first trip to the States, I got to live with her for a month uh, in a house in the country in Massachusetts. And I was uh, cooking and driving her places and helping to look after her in that time. She had an amazing stability of mind, an amazing amount of love, and an amazing presence. Her love was, as far as I could tell, it was unshakable. And she was always just kind of giving it out. She would give it out in the form of smiles. She would give it out in the form of hugs. She would give it out in the form of blessings. She was just, she'd just bless everywhere she went. Even when she got on the plane to come to America, she blessed the plane before it took off from Calcutta. And I never saw her mind waver. I never saw it slide into anything other than peace and kindness. And this was not always easy because she had brought with her to the States her daughter, whose name was Deepa. Deepa Ma just means Deepa's mother. That's where she got her name, named for her daughter. And Deepa's five-year-old son named Rishi. Now, Rishi at that time, being five years old at that time, was a bit of a hellion. He was full of uncontainable and irresistible energy. So we would take them out shopping, for example. And we'd go into the shopping mall because they wanted to buy sheets and blankets and things to take back to India. Well, Rishi would kind of cut loose from the pack and go running down the aisle and pulling clothes off of hangers and reaching up to touch everything. and Things would be cascading out into the aisle in his wake. And then Deepama would run after him to track him down and bring him back. And all the time she was running, her little white robes would be billowing out behind her. She just always had a little smile on her face. I never saw her get angry or impatient or at all frustrated with Rishi. So I figured if she could do that with a five-year-old, you know, she, was, she could do pretty well with adults, too. Someone, you know, many people are struck, were struck by her presence of mind. She's, she's been dead now for about 10 years. And at one retreat, people asked her, what's in your mind? What's your experience like from the inside? And she said, there are only three things in my mind. Peace, concentration, and metta. That's a pretty nice mind. So meeting people like this is really inspiring because you get a sense of what's possible through practice. And I truly believe that people like Deepama get to be the way they are through practice. It's not an accident. I don't think it's because of their gene pool. I think it's because years, or she would actually say lifetimes, of devotion to practice. She said that she was alive at the time of the Buddha in a past life and could actually remember hearing discourses from uh, the mouth of the Buddha. So this reminded me of a poem by Mary Oliver, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Stanley Kunitz, who was a neighbor of hers who was legendary for his garden. So I want to just read a bit of this Mary Oliver poem. I used to imagine him coming from the house, like Merlin, strolling with important gestures through the garden, where everything grows so thickly, where birds sing, little snakes lie on the boughs, thinking of nothing but their own good lives, 
where petals float upward, their colors exploding, and trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth and know my vision for a falsehood. Now I see him coming from the house. I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. The hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience. This is our work. And one week, as one week doesn't get the whole garden built, one week doesn't get a heart reconstructed either. But hours of patience can. And this is really all that lies between us and someone like Deepama, is just doing the work of cultivating these beautiful qualities. I'm very grateful that in our tradition, the Brahma-viharas are our avenue to that kind of heart. We have a path that can take us from here to there. And along the way, as we develop metta and compassion, it opens up all these beautiful qualities of heart, uh, just as byproducts. Qualities like happiness and joy and devotion and humor and wonder, awe, reverence, and gratitude. All these things are evoked by the different elements of the Brahma-vihara practice. All of them come to flower in us. And these are really the qualities that, for me, make life sweet, make life rich and inherently satisfying and joyful. Rumi said, Someone who does not run toward the allure of love walks a road where nothing lives. So I'm very happy to see all of you have run toward the allure of love and happy that we've taken this trip together. So in thinking of going back either into the next stage of this retreat, of a Vipassana retreat, or going back into your daily life, what kinds of things can you take with you? I want to talk about that for just a minute. First of all, I hope you have found some great tools to take with you. I hope the formal practices that we've done of all the Brahma-viharas as well as forgiveness are things that you've learned how to apply and work with and can take back into your daily life and also apply there. So the learning of these tools is one of the important things that we hope you'll get from the retreat. The second thing is not any less important. It's really the spirit of loving-kindness this ability to turn your attention anywhere and see that there's another human heart there that's also going through joys and sorrows and to have a sense of caring about that experience. This spirit, for me, has come alive over this week in in our group here. I don't know how you felt it. Maybe sitting up front, I'm in a lucky position of getting to watch your faces brighten over the week, which they have. But I felt the, the temperature in the room kind of warm up over the week. And I feel closer to you all, and I imagine you all feel closer to each other after this week. That's the kind of spirit that you can help to find in the world or help to make in the world, a feeling of, of trust and openness. And for us, I, I love this turning in the week when we come to the neutral person, because that's really the person that opens the door to this. It's stepping beyond the people that we normally like and opening that caring to anyone and hopefully eventually to everyone. Metta gets compared to, and I believe the word actually derives from the word for rain in Pali, the ancient Indian language. And metta is said to be like a gentle rain that falls everywhere indiscriminately falls on the sidewalks, it falls on the roofs, it falls on the forest, it falls on the flower gardens, it falls everywhere. And this is the indication of how our metta should be showered. Everywhere, indiscriminately, falling like the gentle rain. 
This is the boundless or universal quality of it. This inclination that we find, that we can develop, can also be helped by some reflection. Now, here's one that the Buddha suggested we reflect on. This will only make sense if you can relate to the idea of rebirth that the Buddha talked about many times, that we are born over and over again. But he said, given the countless lives that all of us have lived from time immemorial, it's not easy to find a being who at one point in those lifetimes has not been your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter. And what if that was true? What if looking around this room, everyone has been a blood kin of ours, a very close blood kin in another life? Then how would we feel about each other? Well, it may depend how you feel about your family of origin. <laughs> but nonetheless, I hope you see the potential. That could really change the way we look at people as we walk down the street. So this kind of, this way of looking, this way of feeling opens our practice to all of life. It brings it all in, into our meditation. And as we start to connect with people, we see that everybody basically wants the same things. Everybody wants to be happy and not to suffer. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants their body to be supported well and to be well-fed. Everyone wants to live with ease. This is true of non-human beings as much as of human beings. And then we start to wonder, especially on the human level, are we really so different? We have different external packaging, somewhat. But if you look closely, it's just variations on a theme. (laughs) Two eyes, a nose, two ears, a mouth, arms and legs. And then there are lots of variations on that in terms of you know, height and size and skin color and color of eyes and things like that. It's just variations on the same theme. And then you look inside, and yeah, there are different personalities. We all have different personalities, but it's just, again, mixes of the same components. Everybody's got love and joy and warmth, and everybody's got greed and dislikes and confusion, just different balance. We start to realize that we spend so much time thinking about the ways we're different. And we could easily spend just as much time thinking about the ways we're alike. There are just as many ways we're alike. But we just don't turn our attention to that. This is not just an accident. This is the trick of ego. Every being that lives plays this game in order to become separate. This is how we become separate. We play this game. We fasten on certain characteristics and we say, well, I'm attractive, so I'm special. Or I'm not attractive, so I'm special. You know, I'm creative, so I'm special. Or I'm not creative, so I'm special. Ego does this to separate ourselves out. Metta and the Brahma Viharas all undercut this tendency of ego towards separation and focus on, bring into clear relief Everything that we share, that's what comes to the forefront through the Brahma Viharas. That's what comes into clear focus, and that we can give more attention to. It's actually more skillful to give more attention to that. We've been so focused for so long on the separation, we've gotten blinded by it, and we think that's the fundamental truth of things. In fact, this unity is more fundamental, and in a way is more real than the differences. This is from Rumi's teacher, a man named Shams of Tabriz. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. In the garden of the Brahma Viharas, also, these are not real distinctions. So there are the tools that I hope you found and will take home. There's the spirit of inclusion and non-separation of loving kindness. The third thing is that I hope you've gotten a sense of the possibilities 
of the Brahma Viharas. What the Brahma Viharas really can show us is the way that an awakened heart can respond to life and that that capacity is within each one of us. So as an example, loving kindness sets the foundation of connection and caring. When suffering comes, there's the possibility of responding with compassion. When happiness comes, there's the possibility of responding with mudita. And when the heart rests, there's the possibility of holding all of that with balance, with equanimity. And I believe that each one of you has tasted all these flavors in this week and seen that possibility. So I just want to point out that in the world at large, this is rare. This is not usually the way things go. So instead of the spirit of metta and inclusion, there's more often the sense of withdrawing and separation. When unhappy things happen in our life, we're more apt to respond by getting depressed or discouraged rather than feeling compassion for ourselves. When good things happen in our life, we're more apt to respond by getting kind of carried away in claiming them or owning them or using them to build ourselves up instead of simply enjoying them in the moment, knowing that they'll pass. Mudita recognizes that joys and sorrows come and go and really appreciates joy when it's there. These changing conditions of life happen for everyone, for fully enlightened beings like the Buddha, for ordinary people like us. In fact, the Buddha said there are eight conditions that come and go in the world all the time that affect us, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, success and failure. These alternate for everyone, enlightened or unenlightened. The normal person meeting gain, pleasure, praise, or success tends to get puffed up with thinking about it and owning it. The normal person confronted by the others tends to get depressed, downcast. The Buddha said both these responses lose track of impermanence, that the conditions are going to change. A wiser response is compassion and mudita. And then the equanimity that can hold that change. So I just encourage you to reflect on this as a possibility that you felt this week. There are different ways to respond to life's conditions, and you now know what they are. Putting them in practice, that's the life's work. That's the life's work. But a life's work isn't wasted if that response comes through. You may have heard this story that Someone asked a Zen master, what's the purpose of a lifetime of Dharma practice? The Zen master said, an appropriate response. (laughs) That sounds trivial, you know, but that's what it comes down to. If we can make an appropriate response in the moment, that's the culmination of a lifetime of practice. And then do that moment after moment. So I would just want to fill in a little bit on the other three Brahma-viharas that we didn't talk as much about as we talked about metta. Compassion is said to be the trembling of the open heart in response to suffering. So it's interesting that for compassion to come out, there has to be the contact with seeing suffering, our own or another's. So it's said, in our tradition, we say that suffering is the proximate cause for compassion. It's the trigger that touches it off. Without suffering, no ground for compassion to arise. But you look around the world, there is a lot of suffering. You look around the world, there's not as much compassion. So somewhere that link isn't isn't happening. So why is that? I think it's because so often all of us have ways of defending ourselves against all the suffering in the world our own suffering, the suffering of our friends, the suffering of the society, the suffering of the globe. It seems too much for us. Starting with our personal suffering, we find ways to turn away from it, to avoid feeling it. We escape through uh, sense pleasures. We escape through addictions, whether it's food, alcohol, drugs, sex, work, companionship, whatever. (laughs) 
we find ways to go somewhere else when the suffering gets a little too close. Pick up some other source of pleasure. This blocks then just the connection of our heart with the suffering. And this is really where the problems start. Freud said that neurosis is the refusal to suffer. Neurosis is the refusal to suffer. So our core mix-up came because we couldn't open to the suffering that we encountered probably quite young in life. The absence of our mother or of our father, the breakdown of love, the feeling of not being uh, uh, connected or people not being there for us. And we turned away when we were really young into other, other forms. So in getting back this connected heart, can we open to suffering without defending and without trying to move away from it? If so, that's really what ignites compassion for us. As we do that, we find we can let the heart get big enough to hold the pain. That's really what's happening with the development of compassion. The heart is just growing until it can wrap around a bigger amount of pain and be equanimous with it. That's why the equanimity is such an important factor in the overall development of the Brahma-viharas. And opening, opening to suffering can really change us if we let it. It can transform our relationship. There's a story about the most famous Buddhist ruler in all of Indian history. His name was Asoka. He was a very war, warlike king who lived about 200 years after the death of the Buddha. And he amassed a great army and went around conquering all the neighboring kingdoms, taking over their land, taking their wealth, destroying their armies in the process. And he had just conquered a neighboring uh, kingdom and laid waste to the army. The battlefield was just a bloody mass of carnage and dead bodies and blood. And he was standing on a hill looking over the scene of the battle where he had won, and he became depressed. He said, this is so ugly. This is what my life has come to. This is the result of the culmination of my career. And then in the middle of the battlefield, there was a Buddhist monk who was walking slowly and mindfully, very present, with an inner glow that somehow communicated to Ahsoka. Even in the midst of all the carnage, there was equanimity and just a kind of radiance in the monk's being. And Ahsoka said, what is going on? I have everything. I have all these riches, all this land, all these palaces, all the gold I could want, and I'm miserable. Here's someone who has nothing, and they're radiant. What's happening? So he turned to investigate the teachings of the Dharma, and he came to understand, and he became totally transformed as a ruler. He forswore violence, And he sent emissaries around to all the neighboring kingdoms telling them he would no longer make war on them. He started to realize the importance of caring for his people. So he started to distribute food equally around the kingdom so that there was no poverty in the kingdom. And it's very interesting. The Buddha, when he talked about ways to rule, said that the start of the decline of society is when some people become poor. That's the very beginning of the decline of the society. And for a society to be healthy, everyone needs not to be poor. So Ahsoka put that into effect. He stopped animal sacrifices, which is a common custom in India of those days, out of mercy for the lives of the animals. And it it brought in a golden age of growth of the Dharma in India under the benevolence of his rule. So he's always held up as as an example of a really enlightened and noble ruler. This was all touched off by his opening to the suffering that he saw on the battlefield. This opening can change us. It's not to say that compassion is always easy. I once did a 10-day compassion retreat similar to the seven-day retreat that we've done in loving kindness. It was one of the most difficult retreats I've ever done because my face was just up against suffering all day long for 10 days. I spent a lot of time with my suffering person, as you probably did with your first compassion meditation. So I was just contacting suffering hour after hour, day after day, for 10 days in in the silence. It was the most difficult kind of practice I've ever done. 
But it really did sensitize me to the presence of that in my life and in others. So it's not an easy practice, but there also is a kind of sweetness when it's true compassion. One of my teachers said, um, compassion is like the feeling at sunset. You come to the end of a beautiful day, the sun is going down, there's that warm golden light that starts to spread, and there's a little bit of sadness because the beautiful day is ending and the sun and the warmth are going away. So that little bit of sadness is a part of compassion because the heart's in touch with suffering. But there's also something kind of sublime when the equanimity is there to support it. Something sublime about it. And this is the balance that you see in the statues of the Buddha and Kuan Yin, that the equanimity is there to support the contact with the suffering. It said the near enemy of compassion where it slides into the unwholesome Uh, Sometimes it's talked about as being pity. Sometimes it's talked about as being grief. The grief is in the sense that the heart's gotten overloaded by the suffering it's in contact with. It's too much to hold, so it it gets pushed under. The equanimity is not strong enough to hold it, so the grief overwhelms us. The pity is from a little bit different take. The pity is from a place of uh, looking down, on the suffering. Oh, they're suffering. I'm glad that's not my problem. As though we're above the problem or we're better than because we don't have that problem. That's kind of the source of pity. Compassion sees as an equal. There's a really nice poem that expresses this sense that compassion is a recognition that we're all in the same boat. We're all subject to Pain, emotional and physical, we're all suffering, subject to illness, aging, and death. This is a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's a Palestinian-American poet. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. The phrase in this that really speaks to me is, until your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth is the size of life. All life is subject to sorrow. All life is grounds for kindness, for caring. Then the practice of mudita is the beautiful complement to the compassion practice, opening to what's joyful in the world. This is a really happy practice, really upbeat. How do we respond to happiness? There's kind of a double dose of it. A friend called me on the phone a while ago, and I asked her, how are you? And just immediately, she just burst out, I'm wonderful. And her tone of voice just picked me up so much that without thinking, I said, I'm wonderful too. And I hadn't even, hadn't even thought about saying that, but I felt it in that moment. And so we can just get off on other people's happiness. And then there's two happinesses, double what there was before. 
The Dalai Lama said, if you can be happy with others' happiness, then your odds for happiness go up by six billion to one. (laughs) That's a really good bet. I'll take those odds. So taking a look and see every, every time throughout the day when happiness strikes you. Could be in someone else, it could be yourself. Just here in this simple setting, you know, how many times have you felt happy by seeing the deer or the turkeys or the baby swallows or the sun coming out you know, when the fog has lifted or having a warm shower when you get up in the morning or feeling how comfortable the bed is at night when you get to lie down at the end of a long day? Sometimes nature is a great source of joy. Shortly after I was ordained, I think I told the story of stopping in at Chiang Mai before I went on to this forest monastery. In the forest monastery where I spent a three-month retreat, I was very alone. There was a teacher there, but he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Thai. So I was practicing intensively, as we have been this week, um, for three months. I didn't have any Dharma talks. I didn't have any interviews. And there wasn't anybody else there who spoke English that I could talk to regularly. So it was really quite a period of aloneness. You know, it tested my, my resolve. But what really sustained me was the beauty of the nature. The monastery was set at the bottom of this gorge between two big cliffs with this river running through it. The monks' huts were on one side. The nuns' huts were on the other. And every hut was beautiful. Because I was a visitor, they gave me the most beautiful hut. It was right up the river. I couldn't see another hut from my place. And it was just an idyllic spot for practice. But it was also kind of lonely. So I had that contrast. But the beautiful thing was that the nature really was my support, really provided uh, the access to joy at that time. Sometimes we have to look for the mudita in the situation. A few years ago, Sally and I uh, got an infestation of skunks under our house. We live in Woodacre, and it's kind of a country town, as you can probably tell. So the skunks burrowed under um, the walls and got underneath the house in the winter because they didn't want to be out in the rain. So they came in, and uh, we found out later they started to make a house for themselves by pulling out the insulation of our furnace pipes. And they built this nice little warm nest, and then they found the furnace was a good place to hang out. So they'd sort of be trampolining on that in the middle of the night. (laughs) And then they just often seem to choose about the time of two in the morning to spray. I don't know why. But they would spray about two in the morning. We'd be sleeping, and all of a sudden this aroma would come up into the bedroom. You know that kind of thick, oily scent of skunk? And it would just start permeating everything. So it was not a nice situation. But even then, I have to say, I could take a moment and appreciate the dry home they had found for the winter. So I could actually connect with a little bit of mudita for the skunks. That was before we trapped them and relocated them to the state park (laughs) further down the road where more of their natural home was found. Mudita is sometimes translated as sympathetic joy. And then the sense is... Uh, It's like the strings of a sitar. If you know what a sitar looks like, they're the, I think, seven big strings on top and then 19 little strings on the bottom that you don't pluck very much. You may run a finger across, but you pluck the big strings. The little strings vibrate when the frequency is the same, and that's what gives it the richness of the sound, and they're called the sympathetic strings of the sitar. So they vibrate when their frequency is in tune with one of the big strings that gets plucked. This is the way sympathetic joy works. Your string vibrates with happiness and my string resonates when it's on the same frequency. Now, in that understanding of sympathetic joy, some teachers say you need the big string to resonate first. You need somebody outside yourself. You can't resonate your own string. So they say you can't practice mudita toward yourself. This is the understanding in the Vasudhimaga, if any of you read that. It's an old uh, 5th century text. But actually, the Buddha never said this. He never said mudita shouldn't be directed to ourselves. So another way to translate it is appreciative joy. I actually prefer this, appreciative joy. Then we can direct the mudita to ourselves and feel that first string vibrate. And for me, the vibration of that first string is gratitude. 
when we direct the mudita to ourselves and we appreciate all the things that are right in our life, what comes through is the feeling of gratitude. We just become aware of all the blessings that are in our life. And all of us have lots of blessings. All of us here have lots of blessings. I know all of us are struggling with some difficulties also, some smaller, some great, some great. But we also have lots of blessings. The blessing to be generally um, fed, clothed, and sheltered. The blessing of having heard the Dharma. The blessing of responding to the Dharma. Having the leisure time to practice the Dharma and cultivate the heart. These are great blessings that we all share. When we tune into gratitude, it's a really lovely state of mind. I mean, if it couldn't be connected with mudita, then I think there should be a fifth Brahma-vihara, which is gratitude, because it's such an elevated state of mind. When you think about it, when you're grateful, you appreciate all that you have, so you don't feel a need for more. You appreciate all that you have, so it takes you out of aversion. You're not discontent either. So it really uh, forestalls both greed and aversion through the presence of, of gratitude. One of our friends is a grandmother. She's quite a wise person and wanted to teach her granddaughter about this quality of gratitude. So she was talking to her granddaughter one Christmas day and the granddaughter was telling her about all the presents she'd gotten for Christmas. Very excited. The girl was about six or seven at the time. And then her grandmother, this wise teacher, said, "Um, well, when you get lots of presents, do you feel thankful for what you have or do you want more? And the little girl goes, oh, Nana, I'd like more. (laughs) And the grandmother said, oh, that's too bad. And it kind of brought the little girl up short. And she said, well, what do you mean by that? And the grandmother said, well, haven't you noticed that when you feel content with what you've already got, that's a very good feeling. And when you want more, it doesn't feel as good inside. And the little girl said, oh, Nana, you're right. You're right. So this is not rocket science. <laughs> but we often forget, you know, the joy of, of contentment through gratitude. It's a really beautiful state. It's also, according to the Buddha, a rare state. The Buddha said three persons are rare in this world. One is a Buddha, and one is a person who's thankful and grateful. So at one retreat, I was going into the autumn in New England, and the days were getting really short, the weather was turning cold, all the leaves had fallen off the tree, that gray New England miserable rainy season was starting to set in, and I was starting to get kind of bummed out. I'd come from California, and I noticed my mind going into this aversive mode. Oh, I don't want to sit with this. It's too gloomy. I can't handle it. So to cut off the aversion, I decided to do a gratitude practice on that retreat, and I made a list of all the things in my life I was grateful for. And it filled up a whole page. And then every morning when I'd wake up, I'd read that list. And it, there was such a long list, you know, there were 20, like 25 things on there, that it just picked me up at the start of every day. And it changed my outlook on the day, and it kind of got me through that, that winter season. So this can be a really wonderful practice, the conscious cultivation of the appreciation of all our blessings. I have a good friend who's uh, in the financial management world, and you know how the stock market crashed over 2001, 2002? These were not good years for financial managers because nobody was making money, and most of them were losing a lot of money for their clients. So their clients were not very happy that year, especially in 2002. She said clients were just railing at her for having lost their money. And one client said, screamed at her, screamed at her, you've ruined my life. So it was an intense year from a work situation. But she said, you know what, this has been the happiest year of my life. I said, are you kidding? Why? She said, because I've been practicing gratitude this year. And it's just cheered up every day of my year. 
And the last of the Brahma Viharas is equanimity, which we've mentioned a few times. It's really that balance of mind that can hold the ups and downs of life without being so disturbed by the changes. The Dalai Lama is one of the most equanimous people that I've ever met. I think I mentioned that he was in this hall teaching a few years ago with a a group of Asian and Western teachers of Buddhism. The format, I don't think in the end that this was the best format for us to use, but this is what we used. Different Western teachers presented to him some of the topics and issues that they were struggling with uh, in growing the Dharma in the West, that their students were working with, that they were working with as teachers, and then would ask the Dalai Lama to respond. And so he'd get a few presentations and then be asked for a response. And sometimes he'd say a few words. Sometimes he'd just um, bow to the person and not say much of anything. One time he was asked for a response and he said, Oh, you know, nothing left up here. (laughs) He said, By the time the third person speaks, all the earlier thought's gone. Ha, ha, ha. He just laughed at himself. But then one of the one of the organizers asked him this what I thought was a really kind of uh, direct and challenging question. It was the first time I'd heard the Dalai Lama kind of be, be grilled in this way. And this person said, um, "Your Holiness, a lot of us are concerned these days about the increasing popularity of Buddhism in the culture, with movies like uh, Kundun and uh, Richard Gere getting very famous. We're concerned that the Dharma is going to get watered down." as it gets uh, popularized in this culture. And you, Your Holiness, are the biggest popularizer of them all. What do you have to say about that? (laughs) So he was just quiet for a moment. He was reflecting. And he answered, uh, Some people you see, they call me a living Buddha. Other people, they call me the God King. He said, No, no, I am none of these. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. He says this all the time. You may have heard him. And he, he really means it. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. But other people, they call me counter-revolutionary. They call me a wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, I look back at my own intention. And if my intention is sincere, then that's what's important. How I'm perceived is up to others. About that, I don't care. He said that really emphatically. I don't care. And I could tell he really meant it. But here's someone in a great position of visibility having praise and blame heaped on him all the time on a global scale. The fate of the Tibetan people is resting on his shoulders, almost alone. He is the only person in the world today who has a hope of saving the Tibetan culture within Tibet itself. And he hears stories all the time about people being tortured and killed in that country. And yet, he can still laugh, and he can still hold himself lightly and with that kind of balance of mind. An extraordinary capacity. Extraordinary. So developing the equanimity uh, practice involves this uh, challenging phrase in the traditional sense, using karma, We've offered some alternatives. I thought of one more alternative tonight. For those of you who just aren't down with that karma thing, here's another, here's another equanimity phrase that, um, that I like. Everything arises according to past causes and conditions. This almost everyone can agree on. We don't have to spell out what the causes and conditions are. Everything arises according to past causes and conditions. That way we can open ourselves to the unfolding the way it's happening, the way it's actually happening, without having to blame it or justify it or question it. And in that, the purpose is we surrender. The equanimity practice is designed to allow us to surrender to the law of nature and to surrender to the Dharma. And it takes the individual uh, kind of control out of it. Of course, when we can act in the world... To improve things, we do that. But when we're simply sitting quietly, can we come back to peace 
by taking out the individual struggle. And this is where the equanimity leads us. Sometimes we think that the world is so crazy and complicated today, nobody could have had to deal with a world like this before. But the world was very crazy at the time of the Buddha also. You can read it in the history as it's recorded in these ancient texts. The Buddha's first royal patron was a king named Bimbisara. He was very taken with the Buddha's teachings. He became a sponsor. It gave the community a a wonderful grove to uh, spend their rains retreats in, provided them with meals and shelter, offered lots of great things to the Buddha and the community over many years. As his son grew up, who was a prince, his name was Ajatasattu, the prince got very envious to rule the kingdom. And so he started plotting to kill his father. The father got wind of this and abdicated the throne to his son out of care, out of love for his son. Said, you want to be ruler? The kingdom is yours. But the son wasn't satisfied. Put his father in a tower, first of all, but then found out his mother was feeding him, bringing him food uh, illicitly, and so he killed his father. And this is, the, this is the kingdom the Buddha was living in. Jealous son kills the father who has been the Buddha's main royal supporter for all his years of community life. That's pretty crazy politics. So what would you do if you're the Buddha in a situation like that? Finally, the son came to him for teachings. And the Buddha gave him Dharma teachings the son converted and then really regretted uh, the, the deeds that he had done. So he was able to have an impact, but it took tremendous equanimity just to stay steady through that kind of change of fortune that, um, that affected the whole kingdom. It's said, actually, that if the son had not killed his father, when he received the teachings from the Buddha, he could have become enlightened but because of the heavy weight of the uh, transgression of killing his father, his heart couldn't open to the truth, and so he didn't uh, get that insight. So the development of the, equin- of the equanimity through the Brahma-viharas is a wonderful gift of the practice. But when you think about how the Buddha stayed equanimous, how the Dalai Lama stays equanimous, there's another level happening as well which is the level of insight. And this is the real um, profound source of equanimity in, in the tradition. I just want to allude to it. This really fits more in the terrain of insight than the terrain of loving kindness. But of course, loving kindness opens the heart to insight. So it's not bad if I mention it now. Enlightened people know a secret. They know a secret that Mostly we don't. And the secret is that in the middle of this bundle of suffering, there is no self who's getting impacted by that suffering. This is the teaching of the doctrine of not-self, or anatta, as it's called in the Pali. There are only the body sensations, the emotions, the thoughts, the sense impressions, and and the knowing of them. That's all a human being is. There is no little person in there who's being tormented by these things. And the awakened ones say that when we actually see for ourselves the direct truth of this, it kind of takes the sting out of life. There's still pain, there's still pleasure, but seeing this takes the sting and some fundamental kind of fear out of life. Jack Cornfield was visiting in Sri Lanka early years, shortly after he'd been a monk. And he met with this old monk who was very jolly, very cheerful, living very simply in a a hut, simple bed. Jack went in to see him. The monk was sitting on his bed and said, what do you understand the essential message of the teachings to be? And the monk just laughed and said, no self, no problem. (laughs) No self, no problem. 
This is the secret that waits for us to discover. The, the freedom of knowing that takes away some big piece of the suffering of life. So that's why it says in the Vasudhimaga that the awakened ones understand there is suffering, but there is no one who suffers. There is no one in there who's getting tormented by this suffering. The suffering is misunderstanding, essentially. This is really the union of wisdom and compassion. The compassion that holds the suffering, but the wisdom to see nothing has fundamentally gone wrong. There's just a misunderstanding taking place. Nothing fundamentally has ever gone wrong. We are all fundamentally still safe. And that secret is just waiting for each of us to discover, to free our hearts even more. This is the real source of the balance of equanimity and compassion in the Buddha, in Kuan Yin, in the Bodhisattvas, in all the awakened beings. This is the potential of equanimity. I'd just like to close tonight with uh, another expression of the Brahma Viharas from the Tibetan tradition. They also talk about these states. They call them the four immeasurables because all the states are considered to be boundless. They open our hearts up in a boundless way to all of life. And this expression, what I like about it from the Tibetan, it emphasizes the karmic nature of the path, that the path unfolds under the operation of the law of karma, that wholesome intentions lead to wholesome results. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment to those near and far. Let's just sit for a minute, please. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 15, 2004. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.